want to welcome you this morning. Uh, my name is Brian White. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, we're starting Lent, as April said earlier. We started with Ash Wednesday this last Wednesday night. Um, Lent is the 40-day season of preparation for Easter. And I, I really want to challenge you. How are you preparing for the resurrection this year? Um, you know, I, I love... Scott McKnight once compared hummingbirds and lions... And he said that, you know, lions eat just massive amounts of food all at once, and, and then they just kind of sit around and sleep for days. And then hummingbirds, hummingbirds, they, they eat 40 to 50 times a day, but they just eat enough to get them to the next meal. And, and he said, you know, so many Christians, we, we kind of reflect lions in our spiritual lives. We feast at one sitting, like on a Sunday morning, and we get all of our, all of our God in for that morning for the week. And then we wait until the next morning, or next Sunday morning to feast. And, and I really want to challenge you. Prepare for Easter, the resurrection, like a hummingbird this year. And, and you know, little preparation every day is just going to have so much payoff uh, and, and long-lasting effects. And, and I really do want you to consider, April talked about it, uh, we, we have a daily study guide uh, that coincides with our sermons. Um, and, and you're going to have the opportunity to read through the Gospel of Mark over the next 40 days. I really want to suggest um, and urge you to consider doing this. You know, I think every Christian, from my perspective, should read at least Mark every, at least once a year. And, and I, I think also the screw tape letters. I think just we should all read uh, C.S. Lewis's script, but that's a whole different deal. And believe. So, so last year, we discerned a, a new uh, value statement, and, and I don't want to spend a, a minute on this. Uh, we'll become more like Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit as we connect with the people God put in our lives, as we develop meaningful relationships, and as we change the world for good. And, and we really, we believe those core values were just inspired by God. It was a gift from God. And we don't want them to just be words on our webpage. I, I think of them as a call that God is, is just wanting us as a church to live into. And so we, our goal is to embody those values as individual disciples, but also as a gathered community. And, and this Lent, I want to ask you, how are we doing at that? We can provide resources so that we can grow into those values. But first, we want to take our pulse. And so we put together a survey, and, and it's designed... To, to provide a snapshot of our current reality. Uh, it's going to create a benchmark, and, and we're going to continue to refine that survey over the next couple of years, really. And we want to track our progress, and it'll help us to refine our strategy for spiritual formation here at Hillspring. And so you're going to find on our website, but also on the app, there, there's a survey. It's called Hillspring Pulse. And, and I really want us all to spend just a couple minutes on this. It, it really is a way that we can uh, provide a metric regarding our, our values. And, and we're very excited about this. And we'll share what, what our findings are. But, but we need you to go on the app and to be able to fill it out. It's confidential. Um, I think this is going to be a great opportunity for us and going to pay off in the long run. But I'm really excited today. We're going to start a, a study of the disciples in the Gospel of Mark this morning. And, and obviously Mark is a story about Jesus, right? He is the main character, without a doubt. But Mark is also telling us the story of the first disciples. And I think we're going to discover there is so much that we can learn about our own discipleship 
if we read Mark with a, an eye specifically on the disciples, and I don't want us to just watch them through the mirror or window either. I mean, they can really, really be a mirror for us. Most likely, Mark was the first gospel written, and so he's telling us the, the beginning, the story of the beginning of the disciples. And, and it's so easy for us to get lost and kind of wander as disciples. And it's my prayer that we'll be able to trace our way back to the beginning as we prepare to make a fresh start this Easter so just what is a disciple? Well, a disciple is a follower, right? It's someone who follows another person. They, they have a leader. They do what their leader does. They go where their leader goes. The disciples, their leader was Jesus. Who was Jesus? And why did they just leave absolutely everything and start following him? Well, the prologue to Mark is the first 13 verses of Mark tells us a ton of information about just who Jesus is and what he has come to, to, to do. And, and before the disciples even meet Jesus. And this is so huge. Behind the first 13 verses of Mark is just all kinds of Old Testament stories and, and prophecies. And it just it's amazing how much is packed in those 13 verses. You know, they talk about how God was the God who wanted to dwell among his people. God is the God who saved his people from slavery and then dwelled with them for 40 years as they wandered in the desert. He was in this tabernacle, or you might know it as a tent, during the Exodus. And then finally, he dwelled among them in the temple. And this is really important because Mark is also telling us God is going to do this again in the new Exodus. Mark is setting up a context in these first 13 verses. Jesus is the continuation, Jesus is the culmination, and Jesus is the fulfillment of God's story with Israel. I think this is really important because, you know, so often we think that uh, John focuses on the, the, the divinity of Jesus and Mark focuses on the humanity of Jesus and Jesus is both God and human and that's totally true, but there's so much more going on than Mark. We could spend several weeks on the first 13 verses of Mark, and we're not going to do that. But the main thing, you have to understand this before we even get to the disciples. The biblical story before Jesus was all about God wanting to be with his people. Mark really wants us to get this. And, and there's so much behind the, the verses Mark quotes from Malachi and from Isaiah in, in, in proclaiming that God is coming. But also the way he tells the story of John the Baptist out baptizing in the River Jordan, the baptism of Jesus, and then Jesus' temptation in the first 13 verses. So much happens here. But he's trying hard for us to understand who Jesus really is and what God is really doing in and through him. And we have to get the Bible teaches us God wants to dwell among his people. And it all started back in the beginning of creation in Genesis with the garden. And then it, you get into Genesis further and God forms a special relationship with his people. He wants to be with them, Israel. And then he saves them from slavery. And then he dwells among them as they, in, the, in the tabernacle as they wander through the wilderness for 40 years. And then he dwells among them in the temple. The tabernacle and the temple are places where God dwells. 
They're the place where heaven and earth come together. This is going to be huge in Mark. Because throughout Mark, the temple is going to be so important. The temple becomes a character. It's like it's anthropomorphized. It's, it becomes a, a character in the story of Mark. Because the temple is where God dwells. So when Jesus does things that normally happen in the temple, like healing, like teaching, or he does things that actually upstages the temple at points, he, he's, he, and then he talks about tearing down the temple and building it up in three days, and then he spends time cleansing the temple, we're supposed to think, where is this true temple? Where is the place where heaven and earth come together? Really? Because Mark is saying it's not in a building. The place where heaven and earth come together is Jesus. Jesus is the true temple. It'd be huge in Mark. And God is the God who wants to dwell with his people. And that's exactly what he does in and through Jesus. So the prologue of Mark, the first 13 verses, explains the truth behind that. But when we get to the, the disciples in verse 16, they don't know that. And so they're going to struggle to understand. They're going to struggle with this question, who is Jesus? Because they weren't there when Jesus was baptized by his cousin John in the River Jordan. Behind that baptism is the story of Exodus. God saved his people from slavery as they crossed through the waters, right? And then they dwelled among them in a tent, the tabernacle, for 40 years. So Jesus' baptism is supposed to remind us, when you have been in exile and you turn back to God, he's going to heal you, he's going to restore you, and he's going to be with you. Mark says when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were torn apart, ripped apart. Matthew and Mark, or Luke don't use the same word. And, and, and it's, it's schizaminos. Uh, schizaminos. It's, it's like schism, where our word schism comes from. And it literally means to, to rip in two. Mark uses the exact same word in chapter 15 when Jesus breathes his last and the centurion says, truly this man was the son of God and the curtains ripped in two, just like the heavens were in Jesus' baptism. Literally means ripped apart. And the point is, generally you can't see between earth and heaven. But Mark is saying at the moment that Jesus went into the waters of baptism... And the moment he died, the veil between earth and heaven just ripped apart. And you could really see what God was doing. It's going to be really important to get. Both times this happened, the disciples were nowhere to be found. They weren't there. They didn't see when the line that divides earth and heaven was ripped apart. And the sun went into the water. And the Holy Spirit anointed him, just like Samuel anointed David to be king. And then the father's voice what announces, you are my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. The disciples don't hear that, but they kind of figure it out as we get there, kind of. It's the first 13 verses of Mark. Basically, the entire biblical story, the whole Old Testament, just wrapped 
into 13 verses from Genesis to Exodus, Kings, Samuel, Isaiah. There's Psalms in there. The prophets are in there. Malachi, Daniel. It's all in there. Because he wants us to understand. Mark wants us to understand Jesus is God with us. Yahweh has returned. Dwelling among his people in this man named Jesus. He is the temple. The place where heaven and earth come together. And he wants us to know from the beginning that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. All of the, the promises, everything. So, so the point is we can watch these 12 disciples put it all together. Jesus is dwelling among them. Because the 12 disciples are the 12 new tribes of Israel, right? God's dwelling among them in Jesus. But, but the disciples weren't there when the Holy Trinity came together at Jesus' baptism. When the God the Father proclaims, this is my Son the Beloved, as the Spirit dwells, descended upon him. They got to figure it out. And they do. So halfway through the gospel, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And, and what Peter says, you are the Christ. And then the very next chapter, we're up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and, and there again, the Father's voice says, you are my Son. And then at Jesus' trial, the high priest, Caiaphas, when the priest is in charge of the whole temple, and he asks for Jesus, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? In Greek, he just simply says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. There's the question, there, you, don't, you don't have a different um, grammar for, for questions and statements in, in Greek. It's kind of all your inflection. You are the high priest, the Son of God? The man in charge of the temple is ironically affirming what God the Father said on the mountain and what Peter confessed and what, what, what the, 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 the voice from heaven says, as well as the centurion, the, the, the Roman centurion said at Jesus' death. This Gentile, a man of violence, he even recognized who Jesus was when the temple curtain was ripped and Jesus drew his last breath. Over and over and over, they're all saying, this is the Son of God. God is with us. He is the place where heaven and earth come together. But the struggle we're going to focus on in the weeks to come is, how do disciples, disciples then, disciples now, how are they doing at recognizing this? How are they doing it? orienting their lives around the reality that they're dwelling with God. And, and even more important, how are they doing when the going gets rough? And are we doing any better? Did they live their lives as if God was there, with them, dwelling among them when things went bad? Or are they just disciples when things are easy and things are good? Because they start out great. I mean, Mark tells us they, they just left everything behind and started following Jesus. Mark 1, 16 through 20. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
As they went a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, his brother John, who were in their boats, mending their nets, and immediately called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired man and followed him. They left their lives behind so they could dwell with Jesus. They were going to spend their lives doing what he did. They're going to share his mission to be fishers of men. And it's so important for us to hear. There is nothing in this that says they had evil lives. They weren't bad people. The disciples, you know, they were, they were just regular people. And then they heard Jesus' message, and they realized just how small their world was. And how they could be a part of something much, 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 much greater if they would dwell with Jesus. And they start out so well. They, they may not have understood who he was, but he made enough impact that they just left everything and made a radical life change so they could be with him. And that's the meaning of the word repent. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but behind the word repent is simply the verb to turn in, in Hebrew, it's shuv. And so you, you in Hebrew, if you're going to go somewhere and then you turn, you actually just shuv. You shuv left, you shuv right. They made a shuv. They shuv from where they were going, left their everyday lives, shuv toward Jesus. Because Jesus invited them to share the kingdom with him. To experience life with the God who dwells among us. And to really do that, your entire life has to match the reality. Not just bits and pieces of your life, but your whole life needs to match the reality that God is with you. And you believe it. This means you leave behind the things that don't match up. Your life changes. Our alliances with things that are not in harmony with God's kingdom, they have to end. Because living life with Jesus means living life with the God who dwells among us. He is the new temple, the place where heaven and earth come together. That's what's behind in the next couple of stories. And they all happen on the Sabbath. And I do want to read this section to you from Mark 1, 21 to 34. They went to Capernaum. Sabbath came. Entire... He entered the, the, the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And they were there in the synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit, and he said, cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, crying with a loud voice, came out. And they were all amazed. And they kept asking one another, who is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And as soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they told him about her at once, and he came out, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Then evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick, possessed with demons, 
And the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So a lot happened on that Sabbath is the point. A lot happens in Mark on the Sabbath. We're not supposed to miss that because the Sabbath. Sabbath was an institution and we're going to talk about this in the next weeks to come. But it was an institution that was meant to remind the, God's people what it's like when God dwells among his people. When God's there in the past, but also what it's going to be like in God's new age that is coming again. And like I say, we're going to come back to this because it's going to get more important. But so much of Mark is about exercising demons and, and healing because that's what happens when God's here. Jesus' healings and Jesus' exorcisms, they, they bring a lot of misunderstanding in Mark. And they bring a lot of opposition. And they bring a lot of conflict. Especially with the authorities and around Sabbath. Things like healing, things like overcoming evil, are things that happen when God is near. So why, would I, why opposition? Why misunderstanding? Why conflict? Well, Mark tells us at the beginning, Jesus' message. It was simply, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And the disciples did this. They turned their lives to Jesus. They reoriented everything. They started to live their lives as if it matched their belief in the good news that the time had been fulfilled and the kingdom was there in Jesus, dwelling with them. The big picture of Mark, Yahweh has returned to Zion. And in Jesus, God is establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The line has become a veneer. Israel's story with God is meeting its climax in Jesus. This is the new exodus. They're experiencing it. All of the themes of the prologue, Moses and the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea, the return from exile. People are being called to change their lives, to repent, to turn back toward Yahweh. He's going to transform them on the inside. And the powers of the world and the dark powers, they're being confronted. And they don't like it. And they're kicking back. Jesus announced the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is come near. God is present. Jesus is present. Wherever God is present, evil cannot stand. So Jesus is clashing with demons because he has come to confront evil and its powers. Because that's what happens when heaven and earth come together. Remember, for the Jewish world, back in Jesus' day, that happens at the temple. So when Jesus forgave somebody, the religious leaders, they get upset because that's the thing that you're supposed to go to the temple for. Or when Jesus healed someone, the religious, religious leaders, they get upset. Because that's the type of thing you go to the temple for. Exercising demons, healing lepers, those are things that are supposed to happen in the temple. The temple was the place where God came to dwell among his people. These things are supposed to happen 
when heaven and earth come together. But this time it's not happening in a pillar of cloud or fire. It's not happening in a tent. It's not happening in a physical building. It's happening with this man who's telling stories. A man who is healing people. He's attending parties with people who are not known for their holy behavior. All the while, he keeps saying things like, this is the kingdom of God. It's in your midst. You have eyes to see. You have ears to hear. These healings and these exorcisms, they were the types of things that supposed to happen when God becomes king. But that's supposed to happen at the temple. So should we be surprised when the leaders of the temple are threatened? Because he's taking their place and he's threatening their power. If you follow Mark in the study guide this week, you're going to read through the first couple chapters of Mark and you're going to see over and over and over and over again what I'm talking about. So I want to spend a couple minutes on something I think we need to struggle with as disciples. Something that happens in all of the Gospels, but especially in Mark's Gospel, more than any of them. Mark will tell us who Jesus is, but in the story, they don't know. Jesus certainly doesn't tell anybody who he is. But all the signs are there. Like I say, you know, the temple, the Sabbath, things are happening on earth and heaven, coming together. He's doing everything God does when God dwells among his people. But they have to recognize it for themselves. And then they have to live their lives as if they believe this. But Jesus never says he's God incarnate in, in Mark. Everyone in Mark is struggling to figure out who Jesus is except for the demons. The dark powers they know. And they keep telling everybody, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Mark 134, he cured many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now here's the deal. Disciples are trying to figure out who Jesus is. Everybody in Mark is. The temple authorities, the religious authorities, they're trying to figure out who this guy is. And the demons keep trying to tell everybody who Jesus is. And he won't let them. Every single time, he commands them to be silent. Why would he do this? One of the most important lessons we're going to see when we move from the cross to the resurrection in Holy Week is that God forces evil to do his bidding. God takes the cross, it was meant for evil, right? And he bent it and he forced it to do good. He brought forth and continues to bring forth life from something that was meant for evil. This is a biblical theme. It goes back to Genesis, right? When Joseph and Genesis and his brothers sell him into slavery. And, and, and then it started the series of events that led him to running the entire country and saving everybody during a severe famine. He says, when they are reunited, he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So you would think that Jesus could use the demon's profession for good. Just force it for good. You're the, the Christ. One of the main things in this whole section in Mark is on Jesus' authority. You'd think this confession by the demons would be a pretty significant witness to Jesus' authority. Why wouldn't Jesus let him talk? 
I think God with us doesn't want to be known primarily as a miracle worker whose job is just to miraculously fix our problems. I mean, for one thing, he's a teacher as well. He wants them to be known for his teaching. But he hasn't really started his teaching yet. But I think even more important, we really can't understand the truth of Jesus, the Messiah, until the end of the story, when we get to the cross and the resurrection. It's way too early in the story. You have to go through the cross. You have to get to the empty tomb to really understand Jesus as the Messiah. Rather than understanding Jesus as Messiah in light of the miracles that he's doing, even though that's what happens when you experience God with us, he doesn't want to be known as the Messiah on the basis of what they've experienced so far. I hope this makes sense. To be clear, the demons are using all the right titles. Holy One of God, the Christ, Son of God. They're using the right descriptions. The power and the authority are real. But this is what happens when we experience heaven and earth coming together. But the disciples, they have to journey further with Jesus to really understand what dwelling with God means. Because Jesus not only heals... But Jesus suffers, and Jesus serves, and he calls his followers to suffer and serve along with him. And this is where things break down for the disciples. Wanting to dwell with Jesus solely because he's a miracle worker who's going to fix all of our problems means our desire for God is based on our human tendency to put ourselves and our needs first because we're selfish. And that means the miracles are there to fulfill our desires. The miracles are there for our self-concern. And part of salvation is coming to the reality of our smallness and God's greatness. If I want to dwell with God solely because of what he's going to give me, the basis of my relationship with him is defined by what God can do for me. And next, I'm going to move it to what I think God should be doing. And then I start thinking I get to tell God what he gets to do. And then it all becomes about my greatness and God's smallness is the point. That's not how it works. Simon and Andrew casting their nets into the sea. Jesus says, follow me. And they left their nets and they followed him. James and John in the boat, mending their nets. Jesus says, follow me. And, and they left their father in the boat. I always think that's funny. And they leave their lives behind is the point. Because disciples are followers. They don't tell their leader what their leader has to do. The story of God with us and the story of the disciples, the 12 in the gospel of Mark, it's the story of everyday people struggling with what it means to follow Jesus. It's easy when the Messiah is healing and doing, you know, the crowds are cheering. They like that. He didn't want that press. But when the man who says, follow me, rejects all self-concern to the point that he willingly gives his life, we're going to find 
Jesus is unfollowed by his 12. And he's going to be all alone. And there's so much more we're going to cover before we get to that point. But for right now, who do you say Jesus is? And are you reorienting your life as if this is a reality? And are you leaving behind the things that don't match up with the kingdom? Disciples follow. You pray with me, Lord, I thank you on this day for your grace that calls us, your grace that redeems us, and your spirit that gives us the strength to follow. We ask today and in the weeks to come, your spirit might rain down upon us, renew us, prepare us for the empty tomb. In your son's name, amen.